2 Samuel 12, and we read of Nathan's rebuke of King David. It says, The Lord uh, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Then we turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my in, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in, me, o, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Rejo- restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltly blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God were a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes people ask me that very romantic question of how did you know when you were going to marry your wife? Uh, Megan and I have been married for almost 11 years now, and I wish I had a very romantic response to give them. A moment that we could be proud of and point to and be like, that's the moment when I knew she was the one. And there is a moment, but it's not one that we're particularly proud of, necessarily. There was a moment in our life when uh, Megan and I were sitting in a car in Louisville, Kentucky, 
and Megan felt convicted of sin. It was a relatively small sin. It wasn't a large thing. But I just saw her heart breaking. I saw her cry over her sin. She wept over it. And there is nothing more beautiful than a broken and contrite heart. There's nothing more beautiful than repentance. Megan's a beautiful woman. Landry's been trying to get me to say that she's smoking hot for for weeks because that's something that youth, youth ministers say. But that's not what did it for me. What did it for me is that she was repentant. And I saw that heart and I knew that I wanted to be with someone who would be convicted over their sins like that. Because that's the type of character that you want to connect yourself with. You know, you change over time in marriage. I'm not the same person I was, and she's not the same woman she was. She's way better. And I saw that the process of her trajectory was going to be better and not worse. She wasn't going to fall into vanity. She was going to be chiseled into holiness. And that's what I wanted. There are a few words in the English language more despised, more hated, more disdained than repentance. It's one of those things that people hold outside of, outside of uh, sporting events, repent. And it feels so churchy and so judgy. But friends, I'm convinced that there's nothing more beautiful. That it's actually the most beautiful word in the entire English language, repentance. That God even though he is holy and just, has given us an opportunity to change. You hear all the time, people don't change. I think they do. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful process. Repentance is beautiful. That's the main idea for today. Two weeks ago, we did this deep dive into David's sin. And we talked about how he committed adultery, and then he committed murder to cover up that adultery. In the process, he had to kind of weasel his way through a lot of different situations. He abused his power rather dramatically. God's chosen man, this big sinner, and this cover-up process and everything that goes with it. Today we get to look at how David was confronted and how and what his repentance process looked like. And as we study this passage, I pray that God will give us humility and that he'll give us a desire to change our attitudes, our thoughts, and our actions. Friends, who are you becoming? What is your trajectory? Are you becoming more self-righteous, more uh, indignatious? Or are you becoming more repentant and more humble, and less like the person you were yesterday. That's what I want. I want to be less like the person I was yesterday and more like Jesus. And that requires repentance and deep humility. And so I pray that God will give us insight into our own hearts, because those are wicked places. You know, the the human heart is at war with God oftentimes, and we play a lot of self-defense trying to defend, defend our actions, defend our attitudes. But God, guys, for just a few moments today, 
open up the gates and allow God to confront you with where you are and who you are to be and who you are today. Three, three, uh, three points today. First, confrontation and friendship. Second, conviction and confession. And third, we have consequences and grace. So first, we're going to tackle this confrontation and friendship. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, excuse me, it says this, and the Lord sent, to, sent Nathan to David. Now you might remember Nathan. Nathan came up a few weeks ago whenever we uh, were, were studying the life of David, and Nathan is a pastor, he is a prophet, and he's a friend of David. He, he's something of a friend, and so God sent to David a friend. And what Nathan does here is subversive. Nathan does not walk in the room and say, David, you idiot, although he have, had every right to do that. Sometimes that's the way I want to treat my friends, right? I walk into the room and be like, you idiot, why'd you do that? But that's not what Nathan did. He knows that direct confrontation will not work because he knows the human heart and God has told him to do it this way. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this. He says, The kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. Think about that for a second. The kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. How quickly are you to defend yourself? While there are occasional exceptions, hitting sin head on, confronting sin head on, is like hitting a nail with a hammer. It only drives it deeper. And so what Nathan's doing is he's coming in and he's not hitting it head on. He's hitting it from the side. He's showing David he's not squaring up, but he's coming alongside him. That's such great mental imagery, is it not? That when we confront our friends, we don't square up, ready to deliver our, our, our blows. We come alongside. We put our arm around them. And so that's what Nathan's doing. He's coming alongside. And what he does is he presents this story to David, and it almost, it almost sounds like he's asking David for a judgment on what's happened here. Back in that day, the, the, uh, the king was the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. They made all the judgments, all the rulings, they, all the decisions, and so people would come to the king oftentimes and ask for a judgment on a certain situation. And it almost sounds like Nathan is asking David for a judgment. And he tells him this story, and he says, there were two men in a certain city. Notice it can't be a judgment, because he's not even giving any names. He's, he's making a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical city. One rich, one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. This was like a, a, a small breed dog in L.A. is the image that I'm getting here, okay? And it was a, a, like a daughter to him. That, that's an interesting play on Hebrew. Uh, the word daughter is bat. So Bathsheba. Bathsheba means uh, daughter of the oath, daughter of oath. And so he's kind of using this, this word play. He's almost hiding Bathsheba's name in his story. 
He's really confronting him subversively. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. What a horrible story, right? That this rich man would go and take from this poor man the only thing he cared about, the only thing he loved. And Nathan is obviously trying to say that this is a story of you, David. That you are a rich man. You have all that you could ever want. You've got multiple wives, even though God told you, did not ever give you permission to have multiple wives. You have multiple wives. You have all that you could ever want. And yet, you go and take this other man's wife, the only one he had, his only beloved, his, your soldier, you go and take his wife. But David hears the story, and the injustice of the story is not lost on David. He hears how terrible it is. David's anger, verse 5, was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now it's interesting the way that David does this. He's very, very upset. And he says the man deserves to die. But then he actually issues the real punishment. You see, he, he actually overreacts. What this man has done does not deserve to die. <laughs> this man does not deserve to die. This man deserves fourfold. That was the, the highest extent of the, of the law. David did not have to say you will pay it back fourfold, but he did. He said the highest extent, the maximum penalty, that's what you get. Even though he said, hey, the, the law is wrong. He's disagreeing with God here. He's saying, God's law is wrong. This man deserves to die. But because I can't give him death, I'll just give him the full extent of the law. And then Nathan looks at him. And he knows that it's his moment. And he just says, you are the man. He doesn't say, you are the man. He says, you are the man. You are this man I'm talking about. And you can just see David's defenses crumbling. You can see his entire castle, this whole cover-up scheme, coming down, crumbling around him. You know, up to this point, David probably thought he was okay. With Bathsheba, he probably felt like a lover, not an adulterer. He, he might have said something like, it's just sex, nobody's getting hurt. And then with Uriah, he felt like a general, not a murderer. He might have said something like, well, that's war, people die. You see, every step along the way seems excusable when you look at it one step every, at, a, at a time. But at this moment, he sees where he's gone. Sin will always take you farther and hold you longer than what you realize. And one thing I want to talk about before we move on here is that we all need friends like Nathan. We all need friends like Nathan. We need real spiritual friendships. We need relationships that, cannot run, that we can't run away from. We all like to keep our options open these days. We like to be able to run away from, from friendships and relationships. 
If a church isn't giving us what we want, we want to run away and go to another church. But we need relationships that we can't run away from. That's an important thing. We, we need real spiritual friendships. And, and relationships like that, they require commitment. And one thing that I've seen is that people will move around from church to church or city to city looking for friendships that take a lifetime to build. Friendships take commitment before certainty. It's easy to pretend like we don't need other people, is it not? That we're ruggedly independent and we got this. But sin is seductive, it's deceptive. David probably didn't even feel like much of a sinner until his friend subversively confronted him, gently confronted him. Look at how Nathan treats David versus how David treats the the rich man. David sees this rich man, and what does he do? He blasts him. He's like, this rich man, how dare you? How dare you take what's not yours? He blasts him. He demands justice. He's angry. Isn't it funny how much easier it is to see the sin in other people's lives than it is to see your own sin? Look at how Nathan comes to David. Nathan comes with gentleness, patience. He sets up all the pieces on his board before he makes his attack. He's setting it up. David is ready to roll out the guillotine. Nathan comes in with the scalpel, ready to take the cancer out. David wants to condemn. Nathan wants to restore. Who are you more like? When a friend offends you, do you want to cancel them or do you want to be restored to them? Do you run away? Are you more upset at other people's sin than you are even your own sin? Who are you more like? This is what gospel friendship is all about. Gentle, loving, restorative relationships. Gentle, loving, restorative relationships. That's what we need. It's what I need. We need discipleship, right? But so rarely do I hear anybody talking about who they're discipling or who they're being discipled by because we think that we're good by ourselves. Proverbs 27 puts it like this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The application here is is really simple. Pursue gospel friendships. Welcome confrontation. Be gentle. Pursue gospel friendships. Welcome confrontation. Be gentle. Friends, repentance is beautiful. And sometimes we need help. After David is confronted... He's convicted and confesses to the Lord. Point two, conviction and confession. Point two, conviction and confession. In verse 13 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's like, he gets it. This is his first confession here. What I've done is wrong. It's displeased God for quite a while. I've sinned. My heart's grown cold. I'm in here issuing judgments on other people when 
I deserve the judgment. I have sinned against the Lord, is what David says. He finally wakes up to his sin, and he feels convicted. What do you do when you feel convicted? I'll tell you what I do. I, like, turn on YouTube, <laughs> turn, on, turn on TV, start going on Facebook. It's like anything to get out of that moment. What can I get out of? What, how can I numb myself to this? How can I get out of this conviction? I want out of it. But this is what David did. He wrote a song. Isn't that beautiful? He wrote a song. And it's one of the most beautiful psalms that we have. Psalm 51. And it's just David ugly crying. <laughs> you know, it's, a ugly, it's like a Alanis Morissette song or something. I don't know. Uh, hers might be more angry. I, I, I don't know what it is. He, he's, he's just crying out to the Lord. And he says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. I hate to break it to David, but he sinned against other people and not just God. Uh, go ask David, uh, go ask Bathsheba and uh, Uriah from the grave if uh, God is the only one he sinned against. But what David realizes is that when we sin against others, we're sinning ultimately against God. That our broken relationship with God oftentimes is shown in our sins against others. That's how we, we get found out, right? And that's what I'm usually most afraid of, is getting caught in my sin. I'm most afraid of the confrontation, personally. Why? Because I fear man more than I fear God. It's okay if I sin. God knows my sins. I just don't want you to know my sins, is what I usually feel like. And so when I do feel sin, it's like, deal with that as fast as possible, move on so I can ignore it happen. But what does David do? He's engaging. He's going to the Lord. He's confessing. And he's being restored. He's being forgiven. He's being helped. You see, when the embers of our heart get out of control, when these sins get out of control and start burning down our houses, that's when we usually think, oh, now's the time. But if we see all of our sin is against God, then any sin, if it's the ember, if it's just a small little slither of selfishness in our own hearts, we must be stamping that out so before it gets out of control. And so that's what David's saying is, against you I've sinned. That's where it all started. That's where I went off. I went my own way. Repentance starts with confession, but it doesn't end with confession. I want to give you a quick definition of repentance. I think that this will be helpful to you. To repent is to see your sin, to acknowledge it for what it is, to confess it, to run away from it, and to run to God. You can't miss any of those. A lot of times we try to end repentance with confessing. Or we try to, where we usually end it for most Christians is conviction. It's like, oh, I felt convicted of that. You have to let your conviction turn into a confession. To God, you don't need a priest or anything, all right? I'm not going to sit in a booth and, and let you come, come and sit with me. If you want to meet with me, I'm happy to do that. 
Um, but I can't forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. So you confess to Jesus. And then you, you put measures in your life to run from that sin and run to Jesus because it's sweeter to be with him. That's why David says, verse 12 of, of Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He wants to live with Jesus. He recognizes that his sin has separated him from God and that he must seek after God. When we repent, we confess, we seek God, and we accept the consequences. One of the main tenets of, of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, is that you have to go and like make right with those who you've wronged and accept the consequences of your wrong behavior. And that is such a biblical theme. Friends, just because you repent, and repentance is always beautiful, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be like it was before. And you don't expect it to be. If you've sinned against someone, and you haven't spoken to them in three years, and then you go and try to make it right, that is noble and good and right. But you can't expect it to be like it was. Sometimes we just have to accept the consequences. And so this third point is consequences and grace. Sin has consequences, but God is always gracious. Sin has consequences, but God is always gracious. What were David's consequences? David's kingship was never the same after this. He was never the same. He never quite recovered. He lost several children. He lost four children after this. Several of his children tried to rebel against him and take the kingdom from him. It was never quite the same. But here's the thing. God is so much more merciful than we deserve. He's so much great, more gracious than we deserve. He's more merciful to David than David was to the rich man. David looked at the rich man, and he said, this man deserves death, but instead I'm going to give him the full punishment of the law. God looked at David and said, you deserve death, but instead I'm going to give you something short of that. You see, David was all, his injustice meter was through the roof. He was ready to, to convict and condemn God was gracious. Sin has consequences, but God is always gracious. And here's a, a thing with our sin. Is if we're not ready to accept the consequences of our sin, we are not ready to accept the grace of God. If we are not ready to accept the consequences of our sin, we are not willing to receive God's grace. Because the reality is that though we might be afraid of the consequences, the worst consequence is one that we will not receive if we are with God. And that's what David is pleading. David is pleading to God in, in, in Psalm 51 Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's his ultimate fear, is that God would abandon him, that his sin would separate him from God forever. And we know 
that our sin cannot do that if we are found in Christ. Because Christ endured that for us on our behalf. He bore our sin. You see, the wages of sin, sin earns us. The wages of sin is death, that we deserve separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God doesn't just overlook our sin. He doesn't just forgive us for the heck of it. But every one of our sins is placed on Christ, and he bears the punishment for it. Jesus died for David's adultery. Jesus died for David's murder. Jesus died for his abuse of power, for all of the small sins that led up to the big ones, just as he died for your selfishness, just as he died for your lust, just as he died for your pride, just as he died for you. You see, God makes it right in the end. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Psalm 51, 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The reason why God can have grace with David is because Jesus got what David was most afraid of. Jesus paid for David's sins. Our sin has consequences. That's just the reality of life in a broken world. But it doesn't have to have the worst consequence because God is gracious and he placed it on his own son. And although we sin, if we trust in Christ, there's just so much grace. We're not people that point fingers. We're not people who who just like shout about sin, we, we bear our own sin, and then we have grace with one another. We have grace with ourselves. We're people marked by grace, not by, uh, not by sin in this way. You see, our friendships have to be gentle, loving, restorative. We're gospel people. We're not condemning people. God rejoices in our repentance. I want to tell you, I want to end with a story from the Bible. And it's one that's just brought me so much joy over the years. And I hope that it brings you joy too. I hope that if you're under the weight of conviction, that you'll come to Christ. And that you'll see how God sees you. There's a story in the Bible that's very well known called the parable of the prodigal son. And in this story, a young man takes his inheritance and he goes and squanders it. He basically says, my family's dead to me. Give me what you're going to give me. I'm going to go and squander it. He goes and lives however he wants to live. And he, one day, he looks up and he says, this is terrible. I've, I've wasted my money. I've done whatever I want. I lived a very irreligious life. Maybe my father will just take me back, not even as a son. Maybe he'll just take me back as a servant. He'll just t- let me live with him. Because the way I'm living now is way worse than that. And so he goes back to his father. And he expects his father to be disappointed with him. And this is such a beautiful picture of God's grace. So much better than we deserve. You see, better than he deserved was to be a servant. That was better than he deserved. 
over abundantly better than what he deserves is what he got. Because listen to how, how, how his father responds. He goes to his father and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me be a servant. And his father said, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Is so good. He is so kind. Over and abundant, more than what he could ever deserve, that son got. You see, he came willing to accept the consequences of his sin, begging for mercy, and God gave him ten times more. Friends, this is the God that you serve and the one who is calling you home. The one who wants you there, wants to give you the fattened calf, a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet. wants to throw a party. He is a good God. God rejoices in our repentance. We often think that God will be disappointed in us, but friends, he already knows. You're not hiding it from him. You're not in it from anyone. He rejoices when you openly confess and run from your sin and towards him. He celebrates in us. And one of the ways that we celebrate what he's done for us is through a communion meal. And we receive this each week as people who are in Christ, who who trust in him for our salvation, that he's paid for our sin. We receive this. It, It represents his body being broken for our sin and his blood being spilled. If you're not a Christian here today or you don't know where you stand with God, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus for the first time. Pray to him. Confess your sin. Say, I know I don't deserve your grace, but I believe. And that's all it takes. I believe. And allow him to remake you from the inside out. And if you do that today, then I want to talk with you and Let's connect and let's, let's talk about the next steps of, of following Jesus. And so I encourage you to do that. And if you're not a Christian, don't take this meal until you do that. Trust in him and then receive uh, the communion meal with us next week. We'd rejoice to do that. We would love to have another baptism when we do our in-person, all-outdoor worship gathering on May 2nd. Be a perfect time to do that. So if you're if that's you, we want we want you to be baptized and join our family in that way on that day. But if if you are receiving this meal, let me encourage you, receive it in faith, knowing that, that God accepts you because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done. Our Father, as we come to your communion meal, we pray that you will be shaping us, helping us to repent, helping us to hear from you, giving us hearts that are soft, that will run to your grace and your kindness, that will give us way more than what we deserve. We rejoice in what you have done for us, and we ask that you will complete the work that you've begun. As your gospel people, we we trust in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.